This is Attention, the audio journal for architecture. You are listening to Issue 4, How Musicians Think About Space. This is a 1903 gramophone recording of the tenor Enrico Caruso singing the aria O Lola from the opera Cavalleria Rusticana. It's an early acoustical recording made before the invention of microphones and amplifiers, and it should sound pretty different from a recording made today. Listen closely. You will hear the sound of Caruso's voice, and the sound of an upright piano, and noise from the surface of the shellac disc. One thing you will not be able to hear is space. There's no reverberation or sense of width or depth to indicate what kind of a room Caruso was singing in. The other pieces in this issue of attention are about the presence of space in music and in the imagination of musicians. This one, however, is a story about absence. What do musicians do when they have no acoustical feedback from the surrounding environment? Does it compromise their artistry? Or does it offer new opportunities for musical expression? For much of its history, classical music developed in reverberant spaces. Like churches, palace rooms, concert halls, and opera houses. Composers wrote music considering how reverberation would blend notes, phrases, and voices together. Reverberation helped performers hear themselves and smoothed over small mistakes. And audiences could enjoy the enveloping effect reverberation had on the listening experience. But around the turn of the 20th century, scientists began to investigate reverberation and question whether it was all that good. A physicist at Harvard University, Wallace Sabine, was working on the problem of trying to understand the relationship between sound and space. This is Emily Thompson, professor of history at Princeton University and author of the book The Soundscape of Modernity. He had been asked to help improve the bad acoustics of a university lecture hall, and then later he was asked to work with the architect Charles McKim, who was designing Boston Symphony Hall at that time. And after many years of collecting data through painstakingly precise experiments and actually not really knowing what to do with all that data for a very long time, Sabine had one of these eureka moments that scientists sometimes do, and he understood his data in a new way. He saw a relationship between the kinds of materials that compose the surfaces of a space and the reverberatory time within that space. 
Sabine derived a formula for predicting reverberation time from a room's volume and surface materials. Manufacturers used the formula to develop and market new sound-absorbing building materials, promising architects and engineers precise control over a room's reverberation. Once you have that degree of control, what you choose to do with it is up for grabs, and there's no essential answer to that question. The people I studied had a particular answer, and they thought it was kind of universal and, and all standing, but we no longer feel the same way, so sounds and, are and different. And what was today. that yeah. answer that mm -hmm. people of that era had a consensus right. about? They wanted a sound that was very clear and direct, that was not characterized by reverberation, to the degree that architectural materials had kind of always evoked in the sounds of spaces previously. And for me, it seemed to come out of the increasing importance of electroacoustic technologies that were also being developed at the same time, and in many cases by the same people. So thinking of sound as a signal, you know, and going for that clarity, that communicative efficiency, Anything that isn't part of the message was defined as noise and was thought best eliminated. And so many of the characteristic sounds of spaces were characterized as noises, and the idea was the sound would be better if we could get rid of those noises, those reverberations. To office managers in the early 20th century, a quieter and less reverberant space meant greater productivity. To school administrators, it meant better speech intelligibility and more efficient learning. And to pioneering recording engineers, it meant a clean, clear, and controllable sound signal. Without the control offered by an acoustically deadened studio, early recordings could end up sounding like this. That was a 1902 recording of the soprano Emma Calvey live at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. It was recorded from inside the Opera House's reverberant fly tower, and it sounds blurry, indistinct, and distant. And now, here's a studio recording of Calvey from the same year. This recording is much clearer, thanks to sound-absorbing treatment in the studio. It's also more two-dimensional. There's no real sense of distance between us and Calvé's voice. This flatness was a consequence of the limited reproducing power of early acoustical recording equipment. Professor Thompson explained to me how the equipment worked and how it compressed space. It was strictly a mechanical process. You spoke into a receptacle, a kind of a horn that captured the energy of the sound vibrations in air, channeled that down to the apex of the horn, where it then put in motion a small thin diaphragm. There's a stylus attached to this diaphragm that will then cut a groove in a rotating soft medium that represents those sound vibrations, and thus the energy of the sound itself is what cuts the record and makes that recording possible. 
sound energy, there's not a lot of power there. <laughs> Even when someone is shouting really loudly, there aren't a lot of watts. So you needed that horn to really channel as much of that energy as you could to cut even a soft wax surface. And that horn, and people would literally stick their heads into the horn, isolates them from the space. The room itself is just a complicating factor, and it might muddle the sound in ways that were perceived as problematic. If a piece of music contained a lot of dynamic variation, a lot of loud notes and quiet notes, the performer had to constantly adjust. They had to modulate their voices, acting as compressors, more or less, making the quiet parts a bit louder and not getting too loud because too much energy just knocked the stylus out of whack. For those who hadn't learned this skill themselves, there was sometimes a man who a wonderful vocalist named Devon de Treble described as the gentle pusher, who appropriately, I guess, rested his hands on her torso and would push her toward the horn or away from the horn, depending on how powerful her voice was. Musicians who recorded regularly developed this skill for themselves. Some sat on chairs with wheels. They assumed they're well-oiled so they didn't squeak, <laughs> um, so that they could slide themselves back and forth and, again, manipulate the recording by manipulating their proximity to the horn. Recording an orchestra required other adaptations. If you're recording an ensemble of musicians, they were often placed on these risers. If you can imagine, rather than having an ensemble spread out on a two-dimensional flat plane, the floor of a room, you sort of want a wall of sound to try to get all the different instrument sounds into that horn. Movement and verticality may suggest a complex spatial sound, but the effect was the opposite. They compressed the impression of depth, bringing all instruments into a sonic foreground. The spatial flatness is evident in this 1923 acoustical recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, conducted by Bruno Zeidler-Winkler. In principle, music recording was about capturing as realistic a facsimile of a live performance as possible. In fact, the recording process itself has already dramatically changed what the original is. And people are doing very unnatural things <laughs> in the recording studio with the intention of creating as natural sounding a record as possible. How did musicians feel about doing those very unnatural things? As they adjusted their bodies and modulated their voices in the acoustically dead confines of the studio, did they have to make musical compromises, or did the constraints also come with new opportunities? There is little testimony by early recording artists on their experiences in the studio, outside one book of interviews, entitled Edison, Musicians, and the Phonograph. I met the editors, John and Susan Edwards Harveth, hoping they might provide some insight on musicians' artistry in the absence of spatial feedback. Before we began the interview, the Harvests played me some of their favorite acoustical recordings, 
like this 1916 Edison disc of mezzo-soprano Margaret Matzenauer. Listen to this. And now listen to what happens. It's total control. And in that naked environment as well, there's something mm -hmm. pretty amazing about mm -hmm. you know, being so exposed acoustically in any right. room. That's right. Um, I had a question about that later. Now listen to this. You could go down a couple of octaves, you know? <laughs> Just, uh, and then, the Harvests met in college through their love of early recordings and set out to interview the artists behind them. We were determined to try to set down what musicians really thought about the recording process because we thought this is going to be information that's lost forever because musicians doing autobiographies or biographies of musicians hardly ever talk about the recording process. Many of the artists the Harvests interviewed regarded their early acoustical recordings as inferior to their live performances. I think the thing that really amazed us was the more and more we talked to people, the early people, like a lot of laymen, let's say, oh, I, I did them. It was, a, it was a holiday for me. It gave me some money. We thought of them as a legacy, as a very positive legacy. And a lot of them were very cavalier about it, especially the early ones, because the recording process was so difficult. And uh, they didn't feel like it replicated their artistry at all. One artist who felt particularly dismissive of her early recordings was the soprano Rosa Ponzel. I was the technique like. Oh, that I dreaded. That I dreaded. Of course, I didn't know any better, neither did anyone in Peruz. It was all done acoustically some days in this awful horn. My voice, uh, we had to do everything by distance. We'd hear the first test, and we'd find, oh, this has to be further back, and my voice being a dramatic soprano. Those days, you had to get way back and measure everything by lines. But we'd hear that, and that's too close, so we'd make a mental note, or a chalk line, to get further back on this note. And for the high season things we'd run way back there, about a quarter of a mile. While Rosa Ponzel and many other artists dismissed the acoustical recording process, a few did see potential for a new sonic aesthetic. The violinist Louis Kaufman told the Harvests, and I quote, The studio felt rather dead and mysterious. There was no idea of acoustics or echo. It was primitive. Curiously enough, the recording wasn't too bad. It had a certain directness. And there was one musician who thrived in the recording studio, and whose name came up again and again in the Harvest's interviews. The violinist Yasha Heifetz.
As uh, Liam Barzan said, who was present at his U.S. debut in 1917, you could have put a glass of water on his violin and it wouldn't have spilled. He had the closest there's ever been to a perfect technique. A performer who could do no perfect stuff all the time, be squarely on pitch and produce a beautiful tone quality and have uh, really technical perfection. Standing right up next to a recording horn in a studio free from reverberation, Heifetz's precise technique came into much sharper focus than it would have in a concert hall. Heifetz was famous as a live performer, but his recordings left a greater legacy, setting a standard for note-perfect performance that continues to this day. In 1924, engineers at Bell Labs announced a new invention, electrical recording. It spelled the end of the acoustical recording era. Now, Professor Thompson told me, sound could be amplified to capture a greater dynamic range and a sense of space. In the 1920s, when microphone technology develops, it really creates a new perceptual field for what you can capture and then ultimately get onto a recording. And part of that has to do with the fact that the energy of the sound wave itself, it no longer has to do the work. You can use electrical power. You've got vacuum tube amplifiers to boost signals, to drive the cutters, and then later to drive the loudspeakers when you play back. So the energy of the sound wave is really just about modulating a signal that's already in place. Microphones are much more sensitive to sonic vibrations. They allow you to hear the space as well as the sound agent. Engineers and musicians could now choose how much acoustical feedback they wanted to capture. For a drier, two-dimensional sound, they could continue to record as they did in the acoustical era in a room covered in sound-absorbing materials with microphones close to the performers. Or for a more reverberant and spacious sound, they could record in a room with hard, sound-reflecting materials and with microphones further away. In 1925, conductor Leopold Stokowski made the first-ever electrical recording of an orchestra, playing Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre. The sound is much like his earlier acoustical recordings, it's clear and direct and not very spacious. Ten years later, in a recording of the same piece, we hear greater dynamic contrasts, more depth, and more reverberation. And fast forward 50 more years to 1975, to Stokowski's final recording of Danse Macabre. It's lush, it's spacious, it's reverberant. 
a total departure from the dry, clear, and flat aesthetic of the acoustical era. By the 1960s, reverberation had become pervasive in classical recordings. So much so, John Harvath told me, that when RCA Victor and EMI reissued recordings, they would actually add resonance to the acoustical recordings, to the early electrical recordings, uh, making them sound like they were some sort of fake, endless series of halls that you were in. They felt like somehow to make the recording sound modern and sell, they had to do this to the original sound. Here's an example. First, the original 1912 recording of a duet sung by Caruso and soprano Geraldine Farrar. And now, a spatially enhanced reissue. But not everyone embraced a spacious, reverberant aesthetic. Soprano Phyllis Curtin told the Harvests that before recording her 1964 album, Cantigas y Canciones, I said, please, just for me, since this is all we care about with this recording anyway, just let it be my sound. Let's not add anything. This way, all the bad things will be my fault, and all the good things will be my fault. <laughs> I was thinking that's a reaction, of course, to what London was doing with its opera recordings, with Joan Sutherland, etc., mm -hmm. where they had it sounding like you were in a bathroom with a reverberant, yeah. lush environment. Yeah. You try to imagine what the voice really must have sounded like right, right. because there's so much bloom around it that does not sound natural to what you would actually hear if you were in the audience. Well, especially with Joan Sutherland, who mm -hmm. we saw in person right. many, many times, and it was a totally different, wonderful experience than her recordings. It just sound like they're all in the same wonderful, lush level. It sounds to me like you have a personal preference for the more clear, direct, early recordings. I, yeah, I mean, there's an honesty uh, that's lacking after a certain point because they're going for the beauty of the sound, and I think it's a marketing thing. Honesty in the 1960s meant different things to different people. Advances in recording technology made it possible to capture the pure sound of an instrument or reproduce the experience of being in a concert hall. Or, as we'll see in the next piece in this issue of attention, honesty could mean creating a fictional acoustic with no basis in physical experience at all, yet remaining true to a composer's score. The question of whether to exclude or include the sound of a space, Professor Thompson told me, was no longer so straightforward. As I see it, when I looked at the post-war era, certainly the scientists studying the behavior of sound in rooms realized that reverberation is just the tip of the iceberg. And there are all sorts of other acoustical parameters complicating the problem as well as the solution. So I think that that kind of opens up the possibility of reimagining what constitutes good sound.
by the 1960s, this notion that there is one best sound no longer held cultural sway, and a sense of aesthetic plurality made more sense for post-war audiences, and that different places or different kinds of music are best served with different kinds of sound. And I think that's, uh, in many ways, probably still where we are today, although you are the working acoustician now, so you are a much better place to answer that question than I am. I'm just a historian. You don't need to be an acoustician to hear and appreciate the variety of spatial aesthetics in music recordings today, whether it be classical or any other genre. But within the mix, the dry and direct sound of spatial absence continues to offer musicians a particular intimacy and immediacy. One contemporary musician who embraced this aesthetic is the cellist Stephen Isserlis. When he recorded Bach's cello suites, he put a microphone right up next to his instrument, suppressing the sound of the room to capture every last detail of his technique. The recordings are so close that you can almost feel the instrument, as if you were playing it yourself. Isserlis's recordings demonstrate how taking away the sound of a space can continue to bring us into closer contact with music and musicians. issue of Attention was produced by Willem Boning. The senior editors were Joseph Bedford and Kurt Gambetta. The production consultant was Griffin O'Feish, and technical assistance was provided by Brendan Smith. A track list of all the music played in this piece is available at www.attentionjournal.com. Visit the website or find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app to listen to previous issues and subscribe. Special thanks first to Emily Thompson. To learn more about cultures of sound in turn-of-the-20th-century America, pick up a copy of her book, The Soundscape of Modernity, available from online retailers. And thanks to John and Susan Edwards Harveth. You can read more of their interviews with recording artists in their book, Edison, Musicians, and the Phonograph, also available online. Thanks also to my colleague Anne Guthrie for helping me digitize the interview with Rosa Ponzel. Anne is a composer as well as an acoustician, and you can check out her music at www.fraufraulein.com. This issue was recorded in the Arup Sound Lab in New York City. Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, and consultants working across every aspect of today's built environment, including acoustics. Attention is a part of the Architecture Exchange, a platform dedicated to catalyzing debate and discourse in architecture. This is Attention, the audio journal for architecture.